Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Every week, we continue our celebration of food and the role that it plays in our lives on this show. I thank you for tuning in to explore everything we love about delicious dishes, righteous recipes, food pros, and decadent tastes. Because I'm all about the culture, the history, the science, and the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This show is a place for people who love to cook or love to eat, and it is my goal to feed your soul. I make dishes that come alive with flavor, and I talk food and health, wellness, wine, cocktails, travel and trends, tech and fitness, and my goal is to fuel your hunger and satiate your soul. So stay tuned, because there is lots of delicious conversation coming up this hour. Tony Abu Ghanem is here, and we're making coffee cocktails all the rage. We'll go back and uh, get the backstories of the first coffee cocktails, and we'll see how far we've come. Also, Rebecca Lindemood, the founder of the popular blog Foodie with Family, is teaching bread baking 101, and wait till you discover her foolproof recipe. She is a passionate baker, and there is so much to learn, so please do not touch your dial. If you missed a show, you can find podcasts under iTunes at Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen and my website at chefjamie.com will hopefully make you a better cook. I do hope that you'll follow me as well on social at Chef Jamie Gwen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So let's dig in, shall we? You should be braising. Winter is here. It's still cold. Spring will come soon, we hope. But you don't want to have missed a season of hearty, comforting, cold weather dishes that warm your soul and kill the chill, now do you? It's really a well-kept kitchen secret. Braising makes heroes out of weekend cooks. And so at the start of this show, I like to offer a tutorial of sorts. And this is a technique, really. There is no other technique, by the way, that asks so little yet gives so much back. As long as you can remember four simple universal steps and you have a little bit of patience while that braise fills your house with the most tempting of scents, Everyone can elicit oohs and ahs from a table full of family and friends. Really, it is very easy to produce restaurant-quality braising results at home. Maybe it's uh, fall-off-the-bone short ribs or truly tender pork shoulder. There are a number of meats that benefit from a seared exterior and a thick, rich, beautiful sauce that's sort of been building for hours. And if you're looking to amp up your kitchen flavor, but you want to use minimal effort, well, braising is a secret you need to be in on. So I'm teaching the basics of braising today and how you can transform even the toughest cut of meat into a tender, succulent masterpiece. And there's really no recipe necessary. 
So braising is a method of cooking meat, most usually. You could do fish or vegetables, but that's another story. Surrounded by a flavorful broth so that the muscle, the fiber of that meat becomes succulent and tender. Now, I love what is called brown braising. The meat is browned before it is simmered in the liquid. And as it simmers, it exchanges flavor and the broth reduces and it thickens slightly. And you get this really richly flavored, satisfying sauce as the meat breaks down to just ultimate beautiful tenderness. Now, braising is a technique found in almost every cuisine. And the method and the cuts of meat don't vary too much across borders. What changes is your choice of aromatic vegetables, the cooking liquid, and the garnishes. So the toughest cuts of meat become the most tender when they're braised. And it is all about choosing the cut. So I like the flavorful working parts of an animal. That's usually legs, shoulders, ribs. Uh, in a bird, it means thighs, legs, and wings. These are the cuts that contain soft protein and fat. Uh, but they also have more connective tissue than the leaner cuts do. And that tissue contains collagen, which you have to cook to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit before it softens. And when you braise meat, the collagen melts into gelatin, which bastes the meat, and it gives you that fork tender result. So now you know the definition of braising. Cooking that tough cut makes it not only tender, it makes it taste better because the longer you expose that meat to heat, the more flavor you can produce. So it's going to take you a few hours to get really tender lamb shanks, but all the better for flavor, right? So here are my best tips for braising. There is really a, a bevy or a variety of pans or pots that you can use, uh, but one will do, and that is a Dutch oven. You want to pick a pot that holds the meat snugly so that there isn't a lot of room around it. But when you're braising, uh, you don't want extra space. So we fill it in with the aromatics and the vegetables and otherwise. And the pan or pot should have highly... Uh, fairly high sides rather, so it can hold the liquid. It's not completely submerged, but it is at least a third of the way covered from the bottom with liquid. So a Dutch oven or a deep casserole works great. Now for flavor, ultimately, you never want to rush the browning. And brown braises always start by searing the meat in fat till it's really golden brown on all sides. And it is an essential step. So please don't skip it. You can brown on top of the stove or even in your favorite appliance. Today, technology is brilliant. Uh, but you want to make sure that you get that really gorgeous, golden, caramelized exterior. I use medium-high heat and... I let it go so that it gets deep caramelization to make a richly flavored sauce. The high heat tends to burn. And for this, you have to take your time. The browning of a big cut of meat, like a roast, will take about 20 minutes or so, but it will pay off, I guarantee. Now, once I take the meat out of that sear or saute pan, um, I like to add my flavor base, my onions, carrots, and celery, and I'll brown the aromatic vegetables as well. 
at this point, you can really go in any direction you like. You put the big, tough cut in your Dutch oven, surround it by your uh, caramelized, exterior vegetables, and then the field is wide open. Herbs, spices, citrus, mushrooms, tomatoes, garlic, all excellent. And then you pick a liquid because it's the backbone of your final sauce. And it can be stock of any sort, a tomato sauce or a combination thereof. I like to add in red wine with most dark meats. Uh, You need to have enough liquid, as I said, to surround but not submerge the meat, at least to the third of the way up. I go usually a little more than that. And the liquid will reduce as you braise and it concentrates that fabulous flavor. Now, I take my braises usually uh, to 350 degree oven as long as it's slowly simmering. And I'll check it. Um, I like to braise uncovered because I find that the finished sauce is far more flavorful because it allows for better reduction. But I'll check it once in a while to make sure that it's not uh, bubbling too big. If it's too active, turn the heat in the oven down. And like I said at the start, this is really a, a brilliant, what I call walk away recipe because the oven and this beautiful method of braising does all the work. At the end of the day, braising is just cooking a tough cut of meat gently in liquid till it is transformed into this tender, succulent, fall off the bone masterpiece. And it's a low and slow cook. It's hands off. It warms your kitchen. It fills your house with this beautiful aroma of dinner. And it's a wonderful way to feed a crowd. So what's not to love about a braise, right? If you're looking for my bonus recipe this week, It's short ribs braised in red wine, and it's my best recipe. It's meaty and long on flavor, and the secret to the sauce is reducing the wine. I serve mine with a parsnip puree and crusty bread, and I would love to share the recipe with you. So if you're looking for the bonus recipe this week, email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Don't touch your dial. There is lots more to dig deep into. Rebecca Lindemood is here and we are baking bread 101 right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. Inspiration served up every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Carb overload lovers unite. I truly love that Rebecca Lindemood says that the only way she cuts carbs is with a bread knife. Fitting because her recently released cookbook entitled Ready, Set, Dough will ease you into the wonderful world of baking. And oh, does she make it easy. Here to share step-by-step instructions to master basic bread doughs is the founder of the blog, Foodie with Family, 
Rebecca Lindemood. And I'm glad to have you here. Rebecca, welcome to Carb Overload Day. Thank you very much, <laughs> Jeff. It's my pleasure to be well, here. Thank you. I'm delighted to. Maybe we should call it Carb Overload Weekend or we should just embrace the month. Could we just have Carb Overload for life? For life. That, well, that's the way you live. And I love that you've embraced it. Uh, you are absolutely. absolutely. You are very moved by the scent of bread baking in the oven. And I have to agree with you. You talk about it like a love letter at the start of the book. And I thought it was fascinating to read that there are studies that prove that those aromas are powerful. If I could just for a minute paint a picture for you, it's, it's of my youth. I would walk into the kitchen because I would smell bread baking. Hmm. My mother baked bread, my father baked bread, my grandmother baked bread, and they all made delicious bread. Now, hmm. the fact that they were all just wonderful people and are wonderful people yes. probably had some some draw to it as well. well of but course. the smell of bread baking is the smell of comfort to me. Yes. And there are studies that have shown that if bread is baking in a grocery store or if it is being baked in a home where it's being shown for sale, people tend to linger longer. They are a little more relaxed. They're more <sighs> likely to make a purchase. And I think that speaks volumes to the power of bread. Isn't that amazing? I'll tell you, it makes me think about... Uh, many, many years ago, a chef whom I had worked under um, invited me uh, to his home. And ironically, he didn't cook at home. He cooked in a very high-end professional kitchen restaurant, but his wife mm -hmm. did. And I remember walking in and it smelled amazing. And I said, oh, what are you making? And she said, oh, nothing. And I said, but it smells fabulous. And she said, oh, I put cinnamon sugar in the oven when people come over so that the house smells good. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. And I, I learned to do it. And I had, you know, shared it with someone and mentioned it on the radio and years ago and otherwise. But when you think about the wafting aroma of something so delicious drawing people in, it makes perfect sense why you would linger in the grocery store when there is bread baking. And anyone that lives near you, Rebecca, I can't imagine doesn't come over often. We actually live in a fairly isolated rural area. <laughs> but I did have one instance where I was baking bread and a neighbor, and, and by neighbor I mean someone who lived half a mile down the road, um, popped by to ask permission to That's pursue funny. a hunt on our property. Sure. And we had never met this man before, but he stood in the doorway and he got the funniest look on his face and he said, are you making wheat bread? Oh. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I am. I How am. did you know? And he said, my mom used to make that. It smells like when I was a kid. And I huh. thought, well, this is such an instant connection. Yes. I sent the guy with a loaf of bread when he left. And he was gracious ever on. I, You know, I, it's such a testament. I think that is such a powerful statement to realize that it unites us. It connects us. It... Uh, creates ease and calm. It conjures up memories from the past. And that really is the beauty of so many aromas, but very much that of bread. I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. So we're embracing beautiful breads. And I'd like to start at the beginning. I know that this is very close to your heart and to your teaching, but would you please tell us how to properly measure flour, first and I foremost. Yes. <laughs> inform. Yes, I, I feel very strongly about this. Um, a lot of people are terrified of bread baking. They're either afraid of yeast 
or for whatever reason, their loaf just never turns out. And I would argue that a lot of this comes down to how we measure the flour. So if you are standing in a, in a kitchen with your grandmother, there's a solid chance she's grabbing a chipped teacup or hmm. a favorite mug that she uses to measure every single time. I'm going to argue that you should measure flour by weight. And, you know, your grandmother has had 80-something years to work on finding that perfect teacup to measure her flour and compensate for it. But the consistency is key here. And the key to success is measuring your flour by weight. And I think all great pastry chefs will agree with you. And I think for home cooks and home bread bakers, whether you're a novice or a connoisseur, the idea of pulling out a scale has become less intimidating than ever before because we have come to understand the science side of food more than ever. And I agree with you. I have gone to more weights than measures than ever before. I watched my mother growing up measure flour in a dry measuring cup with a butter knife or the backside thereof used to scrape the top of the cup. And that was what I knew. But when you weigh with a scale, we know you are guaranteed tremendous results. If you had the opportunity in any other area of your life to eliminate variables that could cause failure or results that are less than ideal, you would do it. Of course. So I think this is the angle I'd like to take to try to convince people to weigh their flour with a scale. It actually makes it easier. It does. And And I agree. if, If you've done this several times, I think even if you don't want to admit it, you're going to have to grudgingly admit that just dumping flour into a bowl until you get the right weight versus dunking this cup into a bin of flour repeatedly and getting variable results, I I think it's a lot easier to dump it into the bowl until you hit the right weight. I agree with you. What else do you uh, measure by weight or do you measure everything on the scale? You know, honestly, it, this is where I'm going to sound a little less consistent. The, the things that I measure by weight all the time are my dry ingredients. Okay. So flour, um, I tend to measure salt, sugar, any other starches um, by weight. But when it gets into the liquid portion, I, I tend to still do volume. Okay, good to know. Thank you. As far as uh, starting out as a bread baker, any other tips, tricks, or tools that you think are essential? I think that it, the most essential thing you can have is patience because bread is, a, it, for lack of a better way to put it, it's a living thing. Right. You're adding yeast to it, which is alive. It create, you're creating a matrix in the gluten of the flour and trapping the, the gases that the yeast give off that give you that loft and the chew and the crumb. So you have to be patient with it just like you would with any other living thing. Let me just interrupt you there and ask you, this patience that you're requiring, where do we buy that? (laughs) It's on the shelf. Sometimes it's a little toward the back. Yeah, no, I know. I've been searching for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, the patience, I think it's more the 
impetus for the patients comes from knowing what I'm going to get as a reward. For. Yes, yes, embracing I'm get a beautiful loaf of bread. Right, and the end result. The yes, embrace yeah. the process for sure. As as far as um, other tools, the scale essential. Um, can we bake from the baking pans we have in the cabinet? You probably can. In in almost every instance, yes. Rebecca, if you would please pause there. Back in just a moment, Rebecca Linda Mood, you and me, Chef Jamie Gwen. Don't go away. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because Rebecca Lindemood is here and her book, Ready, Set, Dough, will introduce you, no matter what skill level you are, to your first, maybe, or most delicious, guaranteed, loaves of bread baked at home. She shares techniques and discovers new flavors that will allow you to master bread baking. And uh, far from intimidation, I will tell you, you will no doubt embrace the process. I want to talk about your one-hour breads, Rebecca, but first... How best to freeze bread? If we've made this beautiful loaf, or even if we've bought an artisan loaf, you give some really cool tips. Yeah, the the first thing you want to do is determine whether you want to pull this by the slice out of the freezer or whether you want to have a whole loaf in the freezer. And that those are two really good options. If you know you want to just pull one or two pieces out at a time and toast them up and have them with your dinner, slice your loaf before you consider how you're going to freeze it. And if you'd like to serve an entire loaf with dinner, you can just go ahead and do what I'm about to tell you with that. So once you've determined whether you'd like it sliced or whole, you need to wrap it twice with plastic wrap. This is because bread is really prone to freezer burn and absorbing off flavors in the freezer, and we want to avoid as much of that influence on the bread as we possibly can. So once it's wrapped twice in plastic wrap, you're going to... This is, it's going to sound a little crazy, but believe me, it works. It works. No, once, tried and true, right? Yeah. So once it's wrapped twice in plastic wrap, you wrap it once in heavy-duty foil. And if you want to really avoid it absorbing any kind of odors from your freezer, you'll slide that into a resealable freezer bag. See, and if you want to savor all that hard work and energy, which really isn't that hard per se, but the time and attention that went into it, why wouldn't you wrap accordingly? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, and then to reheat, you say the best way a whole loaf reheats is in the oven. Yes. Um, so you, you would take the plastic wrap off first, right. obviously. You yes. don't want to have that on your beautiful loaf of bread in the, in the oven, um, but you're just going to have a moderate heat to your oven. Mm-hmm. And you can either wrap it in foil or put it straight onto the um, onto the rack in your oven. So you're looking at about 350 degrees, but you're only leaving the bread in there long enough until the bread is warm to the touch. So that's going to take about 20 minutes, give or take. Very good. Thank you. Okay, let's bake. The yeah. world's fastest sandwich bread. I think you should go in the Guinness Book of World Records. Talk about super simple. That was exciting to read that recipe. I can't wait to make it. And what's so fun is how many people have been convinced that they actually can bake a loaf of bread that's delicious Mm -hmm. after trying this recipe. It, It is as simple as stirring all of your ingredients together 
And if you want to bake this weekend, this is, and let's say you're, you're on the fence, you're a little bit nervous about baking, this is the loaf you want to start with. So you're just stirring together flour, yeast, sugar, salt, water, and a little bit of olive oil. You can either knead it by hand or knead it in a stand mixer. And it only requires 15 minutes of rising time. Yeah, brilliant. You form your loaves. You put them on the pan in a cold oven. This is, Even this is where it gets better. Cold. Even yeah, better. So no preheating. You just put a pan with some hot water underneath your pan of bread in the cold oven and set the timer for 40 minutes. Set the oven to temperature, and 40 minutes later, you have two beautiful loaves of bread. It's so smart. You're actually creating steam by putting the hot tap water in a pan on the rack beneath where the bread is baking, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super smart. I, that will be the first recipe I try. Then I will make crazy quick lofty dinner rolls. It's the same basic concept. Right. You're stirring all of these together. In this case, you're going to use butter in place of the oil. Um, you could sub in oil if you want, but I tend to subscribe to the Julia Child school mm-hmm. of butter thought, which yes. is, you know, why not more? Um, <laughs> and when you have your dough, you're going to divide it into roll size pieces and pop that into a pan. And again, a 15-minute rise time, put it in the same cold oven with the the pan of hot water beneath it, set your temperature on the oven, and... About 35 minutes later, you have a pan full of golden, brown, beautiful, buttery dinner rolls. Right. And there is nothing better for the ego, for a food lover and a a grand cook, than to walk to the dinner table with a pan of freshly baked, piping hot dinner rolls and say, voila, I baked. I mean, they're just, there is such satisfaction in that. For sure. Uh, as there is in a pan pizza, your oh, followers, oh, they've gone crazy over your, I can't believe this is homemade pan pizza. Um, and yes. you talk about how everyone's fallen in love with it. They have. And this is actually, this is one of the first recipes I ever had go viral. Mm, this is good for you. the kind of thing where people don't believe it works until they try it. And then they become an evangelist for this <laughs> pan pizza recipe. And the, the and secrets? It's, it's a no-knead dough. Right. It's, and it's a no-knead dough and a cast iron pan. Yes. So smart. Yep. In a screaming hot oven, too. Okay. So it requires a preheat and at 550, right? Then you get that crust and mm-hmm. you get the, the depth and the, the richness of the lofty, thick pan pizza. I have a pizza memory from my childhood and the chain no longer exists, Rebecca, but we used to go and pick up a pizza near where I grew up, that was a pan pizza like yours, thick with crusty edges and the cheese would caramelize. It was one of my, it's, it's one of my first very distinct food memories, albeit aside from my mom cooking, because I remember picking the edges off of the pizza and how Mm -hmm. lofty and delicious the center of the pizza was that contrasted with the you know, crunchiness of the exterior, it was like falling in love. And I, st- I still remember it to this day. I would love to hear what you think if you try this to see if it matches your memory, because I have a very similar memory. Yes. 
and this pizza matches that memory for me. Oh, okay. So we have to share pizza together sometime, you and I. <laughs> we do. We'll be Absolutely. pizza friends. Um, I will be making toastable English muffin bread, which just looks absolutely incredible. Um, but in the interest of time, can we make fluffy cinnamon rolls with cream cheese icing? I love your twist. Um, we also share a love for chai. Chai is another one of those comfort smells, yes. comfort aromas for me. And involving that in my cinnamon rolls is unnatural. <laughs> so to have cardamom and cinnamon and mm clove and nutmeg all combined in my cinnamon roll just makes it a much rounder, warmer flavor to me. Oh, for sure. I'm I'm in, definitely. And the cinnamon rolls are made from your pillowy soft sandwich bread dough. Just proving that these recipes, you master one and you can be a master of many, right? Exactly, exactly. You don't need to know 87 different recipes <laughs> to make 87 different dishes. You need to know about nine. And they're all pretty easy and I like to think that I lead people through it pretty comfortably. Yeah, you, you do beautifully. Um, there's wonderful teaching in the book. And then lastly, as if there were leftover bread, I like to tease. <laughs> no, I like to tease. That's like leftover wine. What is leftover wine? I've never heard of that before. Uh, I know a Charlotte well, because my mom used to make that as the dinner party dessert. You make an mm-hmm. apple Charlotte. And that's really something I think we should bring back. That is a, an old school, maybe considered an old fashioned dessert that should be shown more to food lovers worldwide. It's actually kind of a brilliant concept all the way around. Yes. You take all of these fantastic caramel apple flavors and you combine them with using up stale bread. <laughs> and, you know, no matter how big a consumer of bread your household is, there's always a chance there will be four or five slices that linger behind and just need to be used up somehow. Of something, and what better sure. Way than drowning it with caramel <laughs> sauce and apples. <laughs> right. And throw in some maple syrup. I mean, the, the recipe itself is six ingredients and super simple. Um, but there is yeah. something so rustic and, as you say, comforting about it. So maybe a skillet apple charlotte for dessert tonight oh that sounds lovely yes okay will you will you come over um sure yeah a little while actually so um, i'll <laughs> raise my fork to you um and i will thank you uh, for sharing your knowledge and your passion um the book is called ready set dough beginner breads for all occasions and it's available on amazon highly lauded in fact and in fine bookstores everywhere and you can follow rebecca's uh bread baking daily at foodie with fam f-a-m um as rebecca is baking often for her five boys and oh how we love that rebecca i hope you'll come back again and share your newest recipes i'd love to thanks for having me a pleasure thank you as the delicious conversation continues making you the best cook and baker you know don't touch your dial chef jamie gwen in your radio we'll be right back
Salut, cheers, and a toast to you, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The Modern Mixologist is back, and we're digging deep today to discuss coffee cocktails. So grab a glass, because Tony Abu Ghanem is pouring. Tony is widely regarded as a pioneer in the bar world, and you know my longtime and dear friend. The author of The Modern Mixologist and Vodka Distilled, both award-winning books. He's also a partner in the Mandalay Bay Las Vegas gastropub hotspot, which I love, called Libertine Social, and the newly opened place to be at the Renaissance Center downtown Detroit called Highland and Hearth. You've seen him win three Iron Chef competitions on the Food Network, and he's taking us on a cocktail cocktail journey again today to arm you with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spirits and to keep you warm. Welcome back, Tony. I'm so glad to talk to you again. Oh, Jamie, always a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you. And Happy New Year, albeit a bit late, uh, but we can celebrate still. We're combining two great things that go together beautifully today, coffee and booze. It couldn't get better, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Especially on a uh, chilly day. Yes, better than that. <laughs> that's very true. Um, there are a category of coffee cocktails that actually have a, a very impressive history. I mean, considered some, uh, some would say classics, right? So it's not a newfound combination, but I think we've come to realize that it's really a, a beautiful partnership. So start at the beginning, um, coffee and liquor, do you think the perfect pairing? Definitely one of the most perfect pairings. Yes. Absolutely. And when you talk about you know, starting at the beginning, coffee's been around for a long time. Booze has been around for a long time. But to talk about coffee and coffee cocktails, we have to talk about the quintessential coffee cocktail, and that has to be the Irish coffee. And, you know, historically, here's a drink, you know, that dates back to 1943 in Ireland, a bartender by the name of Joe Sheridan looking to warm up some travelers uh, who were kind of stranded at the airport, made uh, a coffee drink with Irish coffee and a little sugar and this heavy cream and uh, christened the Irish coffee on that evening. And it went on to be very famous. And when an American writer, travel writer, by the name of Stanton Delaplane discovered the drink, he brought it to the United States, to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, to the Buena Vista uh, Cafe in San Francisco. And uh, Jack Copenler was the proprietor, bartender, and he and uh, Stanton worked together on this recipe. And they, in 1952, introduced at the Buena Vista Cafe in San Francisco the Irish Coffee to America, where today it serves upwards of 2,000 of them every day. No way, really. Crazy, right? Crazy. I mean, they them up the length of the bar. It's, a, it's really something to watch. I will say it is not as simple as adding a shot of whiskey to a cup of coffee, albeit some people might think a great Irish coffee is very well planned. Like when you talk about lining up the glasses, it's true. This is a this is a coffee drink that you mix with care, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about this all the time, Jamie. You only get out of the drink what you put into it. And the most important ingredient is love. So the care that you speak of is so crucial in preparing any cocktail, but especially preparing an Irish coffee. I can't tell you how many Irish clubs around the country that I've gone into and had an Irish coffee 
that was virtually undrinkable. Okay. Because they, they don't put that care into it. Right. Okay, so make one for us, would you please? Absolutely. And the key, I believe, here is having the right vessel. Um, Libby makes this Irish coffee glass that is the perfect size so you get the exact balance of ingredients in the drink. And, you know, a, a big tip is always when you're making a hot drink, make sure you heat the glass first because there's nothing worse than a lukewarm Irish coffee. So we want to have the proper glass, the eight-and-a-half-ounce glass. We want to heat that real well so it's hot and it doesn't, maintains the integrity of our Irish coffee. Right. I fill it with hot water from my hot water spigot, and I'll let the glass sit with the hot water while I'm, you know, prepping or otherwise, right? And then prepare the cocktail. Exactly. Once you have the uh, Irish coffee glass hot, um, two raw sugar cubes, four ounces of really strong black coffee, dissolve that sugar into the coffee. Some people will make a brown sugar syrup uh, again, this is where you kind of get to add, put your own twist on it, but just make sure the sweetness is right. Um, and then ounce and a half of good Irish whiskey, and then top it with freshly whipped cream. And the key, Jamie, is to whip the cream just enough so you have those nice big bubbles so you can drink that hot coffee and whiskey through that cold cream. And uh, there you have the perfect Irish coffee. Um, thank you for hyping us up. And uh, and calming us down all at the same time. Coffee cocktails continuing to rage uh, as the the trend uh, propels itself to new heights. Um, and I do love it. You can find Tony's cocktail and coffee escapades at modernmixologist.com and follow him on social media at MDRN Mixologist. Cheers, Tony. Let's talk again come spring. We'll stir up some uh, cooling, bright cocktails as we uh, welcome a new season. Sound good? Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. Always a pleasure, and uh, I think I'll brew myself a pot right now. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration, and I do hope that it fed your soul. If you're looking for the bonus recipe, my short ribs braised in red wine you should be brazing, then please email me, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. On social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, you'll find my last bite for this week. It's my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation with you on the radio. And in fact, I have an electronic cookbook, my first ebook after seven in print that I'm very proud, excited, and delighted to share with you. Its release is just a week away, and you can learn more at chefjamie.com. Uh, but my last bite for this hour is a healthy artichoke dip. So I love a dip with crackers or bread, but this one's a little bit leaner and cleaner than the usual. I love artichoke dip too. And everything from your pantry and staples from your fridge come together. Greek yogurt, artichoke hearts, some parsley, some lemon zest, good olive oil. I'll give you all the ingredients and tell you how to make it. Once again, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram now at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend where I do promise to please your palate. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.